Hey, y'all. I'm practicing. What? Oh, no, 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 don't do the. No, What did we? We got about a quarter second preview. Oh my gosh, you're the best thing you've seen all day, that's what. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12 again. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He told me which way was forward and which way was backward, but I don't remember. So we're going to work that out as we go along. Not that many slides. Um, we talked today kind of about the end of verse 1 or this morning and at verse 2. I have a pretty simple thing to say to you tonight, pretty simply, quickly, with you know, some graphic visualizations and some pictures, which should keep you awake. Um, I just want to talk with you about what does it mean that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? We're going to spend the rest of this uh, week <clears throat> talking about Hebrews 11 and all of the people of faith that have come before us. And the question I want to ask tonight is, um, yeah, so they're really dead. And um, what in the world do I have anything to do with their stories? How is my story part of the larger thing God is doing? That's what we're talking about tonight. So you're probably at Hebrews now. Let's read this together again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray as we begin. Jesus, we know you're seated uh, on the throne in heaven. We ask for your presence now. You've promised your disciples that you were present with them. You've promised your church that you were present with us by your spirit. We claim that promise now. We need you. We need your insight as we look at your holy scripture, your breathed out word, the incredible story that you're writing in history and in our lives. Jesus, we need your spirit to make sense of it. It's the way it always has been. That's the way you have ordained it to be. Would you be present with us this evening? We ask, uh, dear spirit, amen. So um, each of you, whether or not you know it, has a vision for who you want to be in life. It's something in your mind. Maybe you have a vision of who you look like, you know, what you want to be like, a vision for who you want to be and what you want to do. It's probably not Dwight Schrute at Dunder Mifflin. Worst job you've ever had in your life the most moronic people you've ever been around in your life. It's probably not that, all right? You have something fantastic, something awesome. So uh, for me, I grew up in the uh, 90s. You may remember that decade. You were nearly born then. The 90s were an epic time, y'all. I mean, times were good. It was a boom time. I mean, America was getting rich. Like We had cable, TV, MTV, stuff like that. So I had a certain vision of who I wanted to be in high school. And um, this is my vision. Now, you know who that is, right? Starts with a Z, ends with an ack. Zach Morris, Saved by the Bell. You see that show, Nick at Night? Even you homeschoolers ought to be allowed to watch Nick at Night, right? 
Yeah. Homeschoolers by definition don't have cable. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I, um, so this is uh, this is Zach Morris. This is my favorite show. You know, growing up, junior high, kind of early high school, 90s. This dude, this dude just exemplifies the 90s. You see that hair? God. Oh, killer. The pose. You see the teeth? The shirt clearly guess. So in the 90s, guess jeans was the expensive stuff. Now it's like in Target or whatever. Yeah, I'm getting to that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Miss Tessier. My hair doesn't do that. Not even close. Okay? Not even close. If it gets any longer than this, it just goes, you know, it just goes white fro. And it's horrible. My teeth did not look like that. They were full of braces. Before that, I had headgear. I feel for all you people who are in that. I know. I got my braces off, thank you, like the week before graduation. I know. So you feel my pain here in high school? This is who I wanted to be. Look at me. Okay? The, so this guy was popular, Zach Morris. I mean, he was, the, he was a stud. He was on top of the pile. Nobody liked me in high school, y'all. If you ask, ask Patrick Tabano to ask James Lyon, who's an elder at the PCA Church, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, asked James Lyons, who mentored me through this madness, what I was like as a high schooler. My high school youth group, me and a couple of my buddies, they assigned two volunteers each to each of us to keep us under wraps. I was a horrible person. I still am a horrible person, but I'm a different horrible person. I wanted to be Zach. I couldn't afford guest jeans because, again, they were expensive, right? And in the 90s, we used to take our nice uh, shirts and tuck them in to our jeans with our braided leather belts with a little extra Leather hanging down? Okay. It's very nice. Yeah, I, I, I pulled that off for a little while, but you know, that wasn't really working for me. It wasn't popular. My hair, wasn't, my hair didn't do that. My teeth didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do Zach Morris so, uh, very well. So I changed my mind going into college. I tried to re reinvent myself. Um, that worked out a little bit better. Um, I, I, instead of being the conformist, I tried to be the rebel, right? That's a whole other story. Maybe I'll tell you some of that. What's the vision for who you want to be? Who do you have in your mind? What do you have in your mind? It's a, it's a picture. It's an actor. It's an idea. It's a vision. It's a something. It's somebody you admire. You have a vision for what your life is. What is it? I want you to have that in your mind. What I want us to talk about tonight is God's vision for us. If I can put it that way, that sounds like really intimidating. And I've got to find out what that is, but it's not that bad. The goal for us is to be conformed to the reality that Scripture brings to life in our lives. Scripture, the Bible, and the stories of those who have gone before us gives us the target that we should aim at. The reason that Hebrews 11 is in the Bible and the reason that Hebrews 12, which is the therefore that follows after Hebrews 11 and explains more about what's going on in Hebrews 11, the reason that's in there is because that's the vision that we should have in our minds of what being a faithful Christian looks like. Scripture is writing a story for your life. So, when, and when Hebrews 12 says, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, um, that's what it means. It means that Scripture is writing a story that your life is caught up in. Your life is just not about you and about your own achievements, although I know you've got to fill out cards and applications and your report cards. It seems that way. But your life is caught up in something so much bigger. And that's what Scripture is about. 
That's why scripture is so awesome and so fun to study. And that's why we continue to study it over and over again, day in, day out at camp and at church and all that kind of thing. Scripture is writing a story for your life. And when it's saying you're surrounded by witnesses as a cloud, cloud just means it's like a poetic way to say crowd. Cloud is crowd. We have these things, right? If there's a bunch of people at some event, you're like, man, there was a ton of people there. There weren't a ton of people there. A ton of 2,000 pounds. There were clearly more than 2,000 pounds of people there. You're saying there were a lot of people, okay? They didn't say there were a ton of people in the ancient times. They said there was a cloud, I know, it's weird, but that's what it is. A cloud means crowd. It means there are a lot of people. And we're talking about a race, we're talking about all that. You need to picture yourself in the Colosseum with this crowd of witnesses, this crowd of those who have run before you, cheering you on. And Jesus, of course, is at the head of all of them. There's something bigger going on that you're caught up in. Scripture is writing a story for your life. I want us to talk about scripture tonight and what it means that it's writing a story because we can't really understand Hebrews 11 without understanding that, at least in my opinion. So since I'm in charge, we're going with my opinion. <laughs> okay? Yay. So uh, what is the source of this story? Where did it come from? I'm going to look at 2 Timothy here. Well, I'll just read the whole thing. But as for you, Paul is writing to Timothy, a young man. Continuing what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, may be competent and equipped for every good work. There's, Paul is talking about scripture that is something that is, that is a tradition. It's passed down. It speaks to us from beyond our current experience. It talks about how to be saved. It tells us the story of Jesus. And even more, I've got to underline it, italicized just in case you missed it. It claims to be a completely different thing altogether. It claims to be the breathed out word of God. You've probably studied this maybe in depth in other places, but think of what that means. It be the breathed out word of God. Somehow, it, it, scripture and the words were written down through the human authors, yes, but what was written came from the inner will and the inner thought life, if we can talk of God in that way. Just the inner being of who God is. He breathed it out for breath. Breath comes from the very core of who you are. It is the thing that God wanted you to know. The storyteller, the great storyteller, breathed out this story. The, the Bible is not just, you know, made up inventions by people starving for something to believe. It's not just rules. It is the product of a creating and sustaining an all-powerful God. I just want to say at this moment, as an important sort of aside, that I know it's difficult maybe to believe that Scripture is this. Scripture calls itself this, but in our day and age, I want you to know that I know that it's hard to believe that. Because what about, you know, we don't have the original copies, and what about evolution, by, you know, evolutionary biology, and the Bible doesn't seem to line up on all these things. I just would, I would love to have a conversation with you this week. I would not be at all surprised if half of you are not really sure the Bible is accurate or true or that we can even really trust it because it's too old and, and all this kind of thing. I, do, I work with college students who have that question all the time. That wouldn't surprise me. Please ask that this week. It's super important that you ask that and get good answers. I believe there are good answers. But Scripture was written down 
the inner power and desire of God to communicate with us. It came, you know, normally we talk about, you know, something was written, you know, from the pen of or by so-and-so or whatever. And even like other religions have these, you know, sacred texts, you know, revelation from or a, or a vision that a prophet had. The scripture is different. It says, the, the Holy Scripture, the Bible, the breathed out word of God. It's unique in all of the world. Because it's the speech of God himself, there is therefore power. The, the source of the story is the inner being of God himself. But the story, because of that, has power. There's other places in scripture where the breath of God is used, that term. Here's Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Of course, remember Genesis 1. The breath of God has power, great, creative power and energy and purpose. The speech of God has the power to create. So if we take all this seriously, when we talk about Scripture as a story, we're not merely saying that Scripture is a story about historical things that happen, a story that history has written down. Scripture is a story that is writing history. It's an amazing thing. God's creative word not only creates material things, the creation, which we sung about, super thankful for that worship tonight, y'all, and the, and the stuff we read and the songs we sang, talking about God and, and creating and his powerful word. He not only created, you know, the stars and, 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 and history and human beings and the world and all of that. Scripture claims also to bring to life human beings. We talked about this, Patrick did this morning in the Grace Talk on regeneration. And here's what I mean from James. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How were we made new creations, new creatures as Christians? By God's word. By the word. Scripture makes us wise for salvation, as Paul writes to Timothy, not just because it's information, but because by its very power, through the work of the Holy Spirit, as Patrick said this morning, it creates new life in human beings and us. It creates new creations. That's what Scripture did and the Word of God did for Moses and Abel and Jacob and Abraham and David and Rahab and all the people we're going to talk about this week. God's Word creates spiritual life and otherwise dead-to-him humanity. That's real power. That's amazing power. So what do I mean when I say that God through Scripture is telling a story? God's power of creation has created the whole universe and continues in sort of you know, macro ways to kind of create and recreate and sustain. He's dictating the course of this world by the secret counsel of his own will and of his own plan. All of the path of creation, the path of your life, and that includes you and has to include you, and that's awesome. But the world story was born 
from the breath of God Almighty. But it's a story. It's an actual story. When you come to a story, you have learned, rightly so, to expect certain things. You expect it, A, to be good. Okay? You know, be interesting. Have something worth keeping your attention. And some other things you expect, maybe you don't know you expect, except in English class because your teacher tells you what to expect and you have to fill out all the charts. And woo-woo, we have an almost English major back there. I don't know. She just got really excited when I talked about English class. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened. Are you an English teacher or something? Oh, okay. She loves English. She could do this one. A story has a plot. That means the story is going somewhere. It has a purpose. It has characters. People who are involved. And, you know, most stories are reader fictional, so they're not real people. But in the Bible, you know, nonfiction, it's real people, real stories, real things happen to them. You have real love, real loss, real death, real birth. You have sorrow, you have joy. You have bad guys, you have good guys, you have characters you're like, I don't even know why they're in this. You know, it's like, it, you know, you've got just, you know, the, the crowd in the background. You, uh, it's a story. Scripture is a story. It's written as a story. It's got a plot as a beginning and end as a characters, angels, humans, weird stuff. I don't even know what it is. The earth, animals, God the Father, God the Holy Son, Holy Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. I mean, he is holy, but... Anyways, I'm ordained, okay? But I know I have to convince myself because I feel so dumb sometimes. And this, oh, thank you. And this story has a purpose. It has a point. It's more than entertainment, all right? It has a purpose. It has a point. What's the purpose? Jesus says, and his followers from way back are people who are trying to discover what he was all into. Said this from way back. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Why? Because it's they that bear witness about me. And they were right. The Pharisees got one thing right for a while. The scriptures find their purpose and their point in Jesus in Luke 24. Jesus is explaining to his poor disciples who were so confused as to what's going on. They saw Jesus die, and they're like, whoa, we were not expecting this. Uh, we were expecting a king and some kingdom and stuff, and, you know, we want the Romans to go away, and we want the economy to turn around, and we want life to be easier. But Jesus says this, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses... And all of the prophets, that's just ancient Hebrew speak for the Old Testament, starting at the beginning, good place to start, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole thing is about Jesus. The whole purpose is about Jesus. The whole thing is driving to Jesus. Now, this isn't news for most of you. But the news will begin to come, I hope later tonight, maybe even in this week, when you see yourself wrapped up in that story as hurtling toward Jesus as a character in the story, caught up in the larger plot line. The whole point is Jesus. The whole purpose is Jesus. You may have heard it said a thousand times, 
you have the hero of the Bible is God, right? He's the hero, or you might say Jesus. But that means two things. The story of the Bible glorifies God and glorifies Christ and everything. It's all about him. It's wrapped up in him. It's all for him. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. And it means another thing. The purpose of the Bible is to show God's action in the story. You and I make a mistake when we come to the Bible and we read this thing and we come away with, okay, now what should I do? (laughs) It's like, I'm sorry, well, I don't know, but that's not the right question to begin with. The question is, what is God doing? I don't care how much of a, or little of a verse you read, or it's the Old Testament or New Testament. The question is, what is God doing? Because the scripture is about the actions and the work of God. It involves the life and real actions of other people, but, and it's perfectly vital to have that, but you have to have the first thing first, and that's it's about what God is doing. And when you begin to wrap up your own spiritual journey, your own race of the Christian life, Begin to ask the question, what is God doing with my life? Then you begin to ask the right question on your way to getting the right vision for your life to begin with. Scripture teaches us this. The purpose of Scripture is to show the action of Christ at every point in the story. This is pretty simple to even think about. I mean, you know, even to illustrate. You know, for example... You're Harry Potter fans, maybe. I don't know. I'm assuming. Oh, boy. Yeah, Quidditch is happening. I just assumed this would work. Okay. Bless you. I'm glad I can still communicate to the uh, younger generation. Um, so if you're, you know, showing up to the um, last Harry Potter movie, you know, book seven, movie two, you have one question in mind. Let's say, let's just say you have, or whatever, you, you've, you've not read the books and you've just watched the movies, or you're, you're I know... Hey, that's me, okay, I'm a lazy reader, couldn't care less. Anyways, uh, I know, actually I've read them all. So you, uh, those, are the, those are the only books I've read all of. Um, you have one question in mind when it comes to the end of book seven of the Harry Potter series. You have one question and only one question. It's too bad, spoiler alert. That, this was written so long ago, I just don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> You have one question in your mind. Actually, this won't spoil it anyway. You have one question in your mind, and whoever's reading it right now, who is that? You just made all of that up just so you could say something. Are you, in the, are you reading it? Who? Where is the one person? Oh, it is you? Oh, I'm not going to say it. I love you. What's your name? What? Courtney? Courtney's a great name. Courtney has one question in her mind right now. I promise this isn't a spoiler, actually. Courtney has one question. Yeah, did you know that Harry Potter dies? Anyways, so... uh, (laughs) Hey, she... It's not true. It's not true. I wouldn't have told you that was true. Courtney has one question in her mind, and her one question is this. What is Harry Potter going to do to save everybody? That's her only question. Right? That's all she cares about. She's dying. She's flipping through the page. She's on page 750. What? Hush. I just want you to know they're spoiling it. She has one question in mind. What is Harry Potter going to do to save everyone? Her question is not, what is Neville Longbottom going to do to save everyone? Because Neville Longbottom can't save everyone. Neville Longbottom. Neville Longbottom. It's okay. I don't mind the interaction, the back and forth. Neville Longbottom plays a vital part in the story. And he's a dear soul. 
And I like me some Neville Longbottom. Cooties? Cutie? Okay. He loves plants, which is kind of weird, but... Um, anyway. <laughs> Harry Potter's the hero. So your question at every moment of the book is what is Harry Potter going to do next? When you learn to read the Bible and look at the story of the Bible that way, that's when you begin to get a grasp on how awesome Scripture is. When you begin, because of that, to see yourself wrapped up in this story and begin to ask, what is Jesus going to do with me next? Then you begin to get a handle on what it means to run the race, the endurance race, which is super epically long and hard at times. By faith, looking to Jesus. Let me just end by giving you a picture and a framework of what I'm talking about. Hang some of these thoughts on something visual. I'm a visual person. I didn't discover this until after college, which is why I hate school. I hate school. Um, the script, the script, because it didn't teach me the way I needed to be taught, and I always felt stupid. Thank you. So, English teacher, let's talk. <laughs> I want to tell you the story of Scripture super briefly and give you some, a graphic to go along with this. Here's the story of Scripture. The Old Testament is a story of the one true creator God who called the family of Abraham to be his remedy for the defilement that came into the world, the sin of Adam and Eve. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt in fulfillment of that plan for the sake of displaying his existence and his character to the rest of the world. God sent his blessings and curses upon Israel in order to pursue that purpose. The blessings and curses on Israel to pursue his purpose. This overarching story serves as a grand narrative or a worldview story for Israel. Insert yourself, the church there, for church. Each member of the people was to see himself or herself as an heir of this story. With all its glory, all its shame, and as a steward of the story, responsible to pass it on and on to the next generation, and as a participant in that story, whose faithfulness could play an actual role in the story's progress. The New Testament, then, the New Testament authors, they saw themselves as heirs of the Old Testament story and is authorized to describe its proper completion in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the messianic era that that ushered in. These authors appropriated the Old Testament as Christian scripture, and they urged their audiences to do the same. They saw the Old Testament as constituting the earlier chapters of the story in which Christians are now participating. It's an amazing thought to think that this, you know, God breathed out scripture, which is, seems so above me or whatever, yet has very, so much to do with my life. That's why we study, that's why we read it. So let me just visually show you what I mean. Here we have uh, some stuff falling off the left. I think that says creation, that's a C. Sorry about that. So the Bible is God's story. And uh, it's got four scenes, four big scenes anyway, so four books, you know, it didn't go to seven, the series went to four. Uh, four books, in a sense. The first two are really short, 
There in Genesis 1 through 3. There was creation. That was the first scene. The creation, the paradise, and it was the way it was supposed to be, and it was beautiful. It was perfect. It was perfect peace. It was shalom. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. Then Adam and Eve wanted power and glory of their own. There was the fall, scene two. A cosmic disruption, a cosmic earthquake, just a cosmic rift in all that was good and right between man and God and mankind and mankind and mankind and the earth and mankind and himself. Scene two, brutal. We're not off to such a good start. <laughs> this is not looking good. Except, of course, we have Genesis 3.15, the promise of the one to bruise, or to crush the serpent's head, though he himself is bruised. The rest of the story, we just go up and up. In scene three, the story of redemption. Our question then is, what is God going to do? How is he going to show up? He made this promise in the very beginning, Genesis 3. I'll send someone to crush the serpent. Then at every moment in the story, chapter after chapter, book after book, how is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? What's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? That's what the Old Testament is about. And then, of course, it comes to amazing completion in Christ. That's a cross, by the way, with some Easter lilies and a little thing over it. I thought it was very inspiring, so I put that in there. So that's scene three. Scene four is Christ's return and eternity when he's going to make it all okay, when he's going to come back in thunder and glory with power to take us all home with him and to judge us all and to recreate everything, to make it all the way it should be once again. Four scenes. We're living... In between scene three and four, at the end of scene three somewhere, you are in this. You are in this plot line. Just as Abraham and David, I could have picked anybody. Pick Moses, Rahab, pick Ruth, Esther, whoever you want. Abraham, the reason that he ran the race with endurance and is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is because he saw himself as a part of the larger story. And we're going to talk about that on Monday or Tuesday night or something. And Moses and David and all of them, the same thing. They saw themselves as a part of the larger story. And they dived in. And they had joy. And they suffered. But they knew that God was at work. They knew Jesus was at work with them. Your task is to put yourself on that plot line. Is to wrestle with what it means that you're caught up in the story. To think about what it means that God... It, uh, that God's scripture is for you and is powerful to change your life, change even who you are, change your mind about things, to change your spirit, to give you hope, to give you wisdom. You have got to put yourself in this plot line. You have got to understand what it means to see the smaller story of your life as long as it might last as part of the bigger story. This is the grand narrative, the controlling story, the story within which all of the other smaller stories of all of church history and your history and your family history come together. But it's not just that. You see, when you begin to wrestle with this, it's that you begin to find an actual meaning and purpose in your life. It's not just enough... Just really briefly, our cultural narrative, the grand narrative that our culture feeds you, and actually the way we've thought about education, even in a Christian way, can feed you this. 
You are grown up and you've made it. When you're out of college, have a degree that earns you a job, have a job and maybe pursuing marriage. Then you're grown up. I'm sorry, that's just not true. That is not the only thing to live for. Please just don't live for that. Because then you'll be like all my college students. No, I, you know, it's just like, it, it doesn't work. It's not big enough. There's not enough there. There's not enough to satisfy the soul. This is the bigger story. The bigger story is not the American dream, which is quickly becoming the American nightmare. 50% of college students are out of work and we're obsessed with the market and it's probably going to crash and the world is, no, it's becoming a nightmare because we can't sleep at night. Because we're trying to live some other story. That's not our story. That's not your story. The story is a story of redemption, what God is doing, what Christ is doing. Think of it this way. What use is the story of Frodo Baggins if it were not for the story of the elves and the Similac, Silmarillion? I know what it is. I just, I know what it is. Similac is baby food. The, the epic battle two, four thousand years before Frodo with the ring and the, and the guy cutting the finger off and the slow motion thing with the thing and the fire and the stuff. None of that wouldn't... <laughs> Frodo Baggins' story, the small story of a little large hairy-footed hobbit only has purpose and meaning because of the larger story. If the elves hadn't happened, and those other people, I really can't remember their names, Sauron and Moron and and, uh, (laughs) Huron and whatever. If that had not happened, Frodo Baggins' life would mean nothing. The small, he would just be just a hairy-footed little hobbit who would just smoke and drink and not work all day. (laughs) I don't know. That can't be that bad, y'all. Um... You need to see yourself as Frodo. You're small, you know, you're, you're whatever, but you are caught up in a larger story, and in that you find meaning and purpose. The story of your life has meaning and purpose and beauty when you're swept up in the larger story of what God is writing. I want to ask you to do one thing as a takeaway tonight. I want to challenge you as you're thinking about, because this is difficult, and you will not get it all right this week. So homeschoolers, I'm sorry, you're not going to get an A on this. I, I want to challenge you as you write down your mission statement, as you will kind of look at your personality, discover who God has made you, and that you need to do, and that's awesome. That'll set you on great footing for the future. And as you think about what are my gifts and what are my weaknesses, you need to begin to think of that, not so how awesome am I or how horrible am I. You need to begin to understand how all of that can be driven by Christ. You need to struggle to understand how can what Christ has given me participate in the larger thing that God is doing. The personality profiles and the leadership development and assessment and, and the mission statements only have true meaning and purpose as they're swept up in this larger story. Understand your individuality as part of the larger story and as it not being merely about you. It's about Jesus again. And we end there and there's your meaning and your purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us with this task. It's so difficult to even think beyond the next week and all the stuff we have to do. And 
we're in sports and we have jobs and, and, and we've got college applications and we've got we've got mess back home and all these things in our minds. Jesus, would you sweep us up this week? Show us more of your glory. I pray that you would give us wisdom. Make us wise, even at, even at our young age, to what it means to live our lives for you, Jesus, and to, and to be a part of what you are doing in service and humility and love to you. Do this work in us, Jesus, we pray. Amen.